Hey, I'm Dr. Michael Hunter, forensic pathologist from Autopsy, Reels Channel's medical mystery series on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to download the Podcast One app and subscribe. Then go to reels.com, that's R-E-E-L-Z.com, to find more programs like this one on Reels Channel. Another generation has lost another bright young comedian. Tonight in Chicago, there are tears at the death of Chris Farley. Farley's brother found the 33-year-old comic dead on the floor. Chris Farley was the larger-than-life comedy maverick who rose to fame through Saturday Night Live. Everybody loved Chris. From the moment he opened his mouth, the audience would be screaming. <laughs> you're terrible. His relationship with the audience was pure love, and they laughed at him like crazy. His unique blend of riotous slapstick and lovable vulnerability won the hearts of millions. <laughs> okay, enough with the jokes. He had this lovable, big, puppy dog face that just kind of drew people in. <laughs> but on December 18th, 1997... Chris's body was found on the floor of his Chicago apartment. He died alone, aged 33. The cause of Chris Farley's death is not known tonight. An autopsy is expected to provide some answers tomorrow. Chris Farley always appeared to be the life and the soul of the party. And his excessive lifestyle was well reported. But was his untimely death simply the result of him not being able to stop? Or is there a darker medical side that pushed Chris to excess? Dr. Michael Hunter is a world-renowned forensic pathologist. He's performed over 4,000 autopsies to investigate and reveal the cause of death. Today, he's the chief medical examiner in one of America's biggest cities. This is Chris Farley's autopsy report, and I'm going to use it to try to determine why this hugely popular entertainer died alone and at such a young age. Sunday, December 14th, 1997, Chicago, four days before his death. Comedian Chris Farley is in his local church. He's a devout Catholic and attends Mass and Confession every week. Back in Hollywood, the 33-year-old bachelor is hot property. His latest movie release, Beverly Hills Ninja, earned him a cool $6 million. But he's desperate to move away from mainstream comedy into more challenging roles. He was scheduled to do a David Mamet film about Fatty Arbuckle, uh, which would have been a very serious film. And he really, really wanted to do that. He wanted to show the world that he had this, this other side. The role is a potentially career-defining move for Chris. But it will require a whole new level of discipline. Hours after leaving the church, Chris heads downtown to a bar for Christmas drinks with friends and family. It's great, man. With no serious relationship in his life, he revels in the social status of being a Hollywood star. Chris came into the bar I was working at. He 
and people are kind of following him, and people on the street are kind of drawn to him, and just the, the whole energy level in the place just rose about 10 degrees just from him walking in the door. Let's party! Let's show Chris him. is a much-loved local celebrity, and there's never a shortage of fans wanting to shake his hand and buy him a beer. But in four days, he will be dead. The first thing I noticed looking at Chris's autopsy report is his weight. At the time of his death, he was 296 pounds, and he was only 5 foot 8 inches. This gives him a body mass index of 44.9. He was morbidly obese. Chris Farley was born in 1964 to a large Catholic family in Madison, Wisconsin. He struggled with his weight from an early age, but quickly found a way to turn it to his advantage. He learned at a very young age, if he could make fun of himself before others made fun of him, that that warded people off. He literally was going to make a joke before anybody even had a chance to. As these Farley family home movies show, Chris and his four siblings were close, and they idolized their father. Dad is such a larger-than-life figure, and the kids are all competing to make him laugh all the time. And Chris, in a family of pretty good comedians, is the best at making his dad laugh. And, and he, he quickly sort of found out that making his dad laugh was the absolutely most golden feeling in the world. It's a feeling Chris pursued on stage. By his early 20s, he was living in Chicago and forging a career in improvisational comedy at the famous theater company, Second City. Improv is about, I'm going to take what you give me, I'm adding something to it. I'm putting some more spice in the stew. Chris did it better than anybody. He'd take something that was already pretty good and take it stratospheric. I loved him immediately because he listened to me. And he looked up to me and said, I, you know, you're a very funny guy, Tim, and, you know, and I respect your timing. Chris took inspiration from other heavyweight comedians. John Candy, John Goodman, and above all, John Belushi. He idolized him. I mean, he wore his clothes backstage, emulated his mannerisms. He taped his eyelid up so he could look to John Belushi, and he decided he was going to kind of become John Belushi. But Chris soon made his own mark on the comedy circuit. As this footage recorded at Second City shows, he established an aggressive, in-your-face stage presence, which audiences loved. So I'm bleeding pretty bad, right? And I have to get a little bit of red blood on his white dude's mark, and he's yelling at me for bleeding! Chris was on another level. He would disrobe, he would drop his pants, he would literally do anything he was dared to do. Looking at the external examination of Chris's body, the next thing I notice is a series of bruises around his left eye and his buttocks. Despite his size, Chris was an extremely athletic man, known for his wild stage antics and outrageous stunts. Me and you. It was like a tornado coming in the room. He chose to take a running dive straight out so all you saw was this big fat guy come flying from stage left slammed straight on the ground and get up and say oh, oh sorry 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 i'm late 
drunk, he'd fall to the ground, he'd roll around, he'd punch people, just being silly. So when he would take his shirt off, you'd see bruises on him because, you know, he was his own padding. He wasn't uh, protected in any way. Chris's most famous character, Matt Foley, was the perfect vehicle for his no-holds-barred slapstick. As this clip from Saturday Night Live demonstrates. Looks like Fido had a little hand in this. I think it's likely that these bruises are a result of Chris's physicality during performance or maybe a simple fall. There's certainly nothing here that suggests foul play, and these injuries are minimal and no way contributed to his death. But what is clear from the autopsy is that Chris was as reckless with the inside of his body as he was with the outside. Sunday, December 14th, 1997. Three and a half days before his death. Chris is eating dinner and drinking heavily at the Cheesecake Factory on Chicago's Magnificent Mile. As we know, Chris was at a seriously unhealthy weight, and this could have put him at risk for a number of health problems, the most obvious of which is diabetes. It can be a fatal disease leading to heart attack, stroke, and kidney failure. You'd go out to dinner with him, and you'd order maybe, um, you know, tostada plate and a margarita. He would order two tostada plates and two margaritas, and then he'd add two more margaritas. Whatever you ate or drank, he would order much more of it. Ordering double of every dish was a ritual Chris became well-known for in his circle of friends. It's not clear from the autopsy report whether Chris had diabetes, but I can see by his glucose level that he wasn't hyperglycemic at the time of his death. So even if he did have diabetes, it didn't kill him. Nonetheless, his strange habit of eating two of everything Hints at a compulsive and addictive personality. Smaller. You told me bring big. it up and Bigger's bring it down. better. <laughs> Bigger's better. But his mercurial personality was both a blessing and a curse. This Saturday Night Live sketch made him a household name, but fame came at a price. I said, Did it bother you that you did that sketch that you were made fun of? And they thought about it, and he said, oh, yeah, I was hurt. I was hurt. And But, you know, that's what they wanted me to do, so I did it. His credo was, fatty falls down. So he knew he was typecast, and I think he took it on as a burden, kind of like a sad burden. Like, this is what people expect of me. I have to be this clown. But the burden of playing the fat clown is what made him rich and famous. So you have this conflict that I know that, you know, being this overweight, drinking this much, eating this much isn't good for me. But if I'm not the fat, funny guy, then who am I? Really? There's evidence of Chris's psychological struggles and anguish in the toxicology section of the autopsy report. They found traces of fluoxetine, commonly known as Prozac, 
in the blood and in the liver. Prozac is a strong antidepressant used to treat a number of psychological conditions, including major depressive disorder. So, did Prozac play a role in his death? Or does its presence simply indicate that there were much bigger demons in his life? Comedian Chris Farley was found dead in his apartment in December 1997. He was 33 years old. Top medical examiner Dr. Michael Hunter is analyzing Chris's autopsy report to piece together what was happening in Chris's body during his final days. I discovered in the autopsy report that there are traces of Prozac found in Chris's blood. He was taking it at a moderate level, so this wasn't an overdose. But it does raise questions about his state of mind. Prozac is used to treat depression, and it can also be used to treat obsessive-compulsive disorder. We could see him coming down the hallway, and it was, you know, touch this coat, lick this thing, sniff this thing, touch the step, go back up a step, come back down a step. It's like, oh, that's Chris's thing. He licks and touches things. Everyone just, like, accepted it. Is like one of the other quirks of this crazy big guy. OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, is an anxiety disorder uh, that gives people intrusive thoughts, so sort of obsessive thoughts they ruminate over, over and over again. The thought might be, you know, something really bad is going to happen unless I turn the light switch on and off. And usually it's very ritualistic, so it's not just on and off, but I've got to do it an even number of times. In Chris's case, obsessive thoughts were probably to do with his performances. So it seemed that a lot of where he became compulsive was right before a performance. So he would engage in things like touching certain objects before he went on stage or, or licking certain objects, it's, it's been said. And then he would feel that the performance was going to go okay, that now I've done all that, it's, it's going to be fine. What? The carpet and the cameras! <laughs> Prozac helps boost the chemicals in the brain which control mood, alleviating the feelings of anxiety that bring on OCD. <laughs> Compulsive habits like licking and touching things and always ordering two of the same dish may seem like harmless little quirks, but OCD is oftentimes associated with far more dangerous compulsions. The autopsy report shows that Chris had a high level of fat in the liver, which could indicate that he had a drinking problem. The liver's function is to filter out harmful substances from the blood, like alcohol. Heavy alcohol consumption damages liver cells and slows down the organ's ability to process fats, resulting in excessive fat, which can cause liver failure and ultimately death. Could Chris's liver have become so damaged that it played a role in his untimely death? December 15, 1997, 1 a.m., three days before his death. Chris is drinking his way around downtown Chicago. And there was a little trail of people kind of following him, and even the people in that bar kind of congregated to him as if he was some kind of magnet. But, boy, you could tell he was on a roll at that point. 
Chris has been a heavy drinker since his college days. And by 1997, his drinking was legendary. Chris had a love for alcohol, and he would drink it with a plum. I mean, it would just pour down his face. And I used to say, Chris, no one's going to take it away from you. When the bars closed at 3 a.m., the other sensible drinkers knew, okay, that's enough, but not for Chris. He knew for him the party was just getting started at that hour. He didn't have that stop button. And according to eyewitnesses, December 15th, 1997 is no different. Chris continues drinking until 9 a.m. There's evidence in the autopsy report that Chris's alcohol abuse had caused a fatty liver, but it appears to be functioning properly because there's no evidence of cirrhosis. December 15th, 1997. Following a night of bar hopping and epic drinking, Chris is recovering in his apartment. His friend Tim O'Malley pays him a visit. He's crying. I said, what's up? And he said, there's this movie that David Mamet wrote about Fatty Arbuckle, and he wants me to play the lead. Man, people take me seriously. You know, it's real good. It's very important that I do it. It's a, it's a tragic story. I won't be the clown anymore. I get to play a, a dramatic role. we got to work on you first, okay? Although Chris appears a perfect choice for the role of troubled silent film star Fatty Arbuckle, his lifestyle is far from perfect. And he said that the contingent for this movie is that I stay sober for two years before they film it. That was his big fear. He was like, I can't do it. I can't stay sober for two years. Chris has tried to overcome his addictions many times, but his relationship with rehab was never easy. Chris was in about 17 rehabs over the course of his life and varying degrees of difficulty. And at times they would work, at times they wouldn't, but he almost treated it like timeout. It was something he did to tick a box. Chris's attitude to rehab was fueled by his equally obese father. Chris adored his dad and always craved his approval, even telling friends he stayed overweight to please him. But Tom Farley Sr. had no time for rehab. There was a very famous story about Chris and his dad going to a fat camp. And they get into the group therapy portion of this. His dad looks at Chris and says, we're out of here. And they go off on a bender. They go off on a vacation. Well, that's a pretty good idea of how his dad might have thought about rehabilitation. Chris faces an ultimatum. He must stop drinking or his dream of a serious acting career is over. From the autopsy report, I can see no signs that Chris was slowing down. And it seems to me that his much-loved father may have unwittingly played a central role in fostering some of his addictions. But the results of the toxicology report come as a great surprise. There is no alcohol in his system when he died. This tells me that he must have quit drinking and had a chance to metabolize that alcohol away. But elsewhere in the report, I've found evidence of addictions far more dangerous than food or alcohol. Once addiction has you fully, it's kind of like 
you know, you're already a werewolf. There's no way you can change back unless you seek professional help. It's Dr. Michael Hunter. Did you know you can stream the autopsy television series, including this episode, on Chris Farley? Well, you can. Just download the Reels app and subscribe to see the TV show behind the podcast. And if you've got Prime, it's on Amazon channels too. Once you're streaming, you'll find more real-life and death programs from Reels like Copycat Killers, about murderers inspired by movies. You'll also get access to Murder Made Me Famous, the real crime series that profiles people like Jody Arias and Drew Peterson, who are household names because of the murders they committed. It all comes from the real-life mystery fans at Reels Channel. Find Reels on your TV at Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com. World-renowned medical examiner Dr. Michael Hunter is studying the autopsy report of anarchic comedy actor Chris Farley to determine the causes of his death. I've discovered that although Chris has an addiction to alcohol, his heavy drinking did not contribute to his death. But I can see by the toxicology report that he did use illicit drugs. A trace amount of THC or tetrahydrocannabinol was identified in the urine. And this is the active component of cannabis. December 16th, 1997, 8.25 a.m., one and a half days before his death. Chris is in his apartment, drinking vodka and smoking cannabis. Yeah, all right. Despite being rich and famous, and with no shortage of female admirers, he regularly uses the services of call girls. When a woman was interested in Chris, he kind of always asked himself, what does she see in this fat guy? What does this beautiful woman want to be with me for? And he always questioned, was it just the money? Was it just the fame? So with prostitutes, at least the deal was clear, and he didn't have to wonder about that. But according to the call girl, Chris doesn't want sex and appears interested only in her company. His mood is despondent and manic. The effects of cannabis on the brain are much disputed, but combining alcohol and cannabis may magnify the feelings of anxiety and depression. Now, the autopsy report shows only a small concentration, so this did not contribute in any way to his death. But... His wild behavior does suggest a mental condition that may have led him down a self-destructive path. It was very obvious to people that he had psychological issues. I had suggested maybe he needed to speak to somebody and he said, no, I'm, I'm Catholic. I have a priest that I see twice a week, so I don't need to do anything like that. We talk about going to confession and having the priests say to him, you're absolved. And I'd say, Chris, when you're absolved, it doesn't mean of drinking and drugging. You're not being told you can go out and drink again. And you have to understand that. It appears Chris wasn't receiving proper therapy for his psychological conditions or for his multiple addictions. If his depression was worsening over these last few days, 
I have to wonder if he was turning to stronger drugs in order to cope. December 17, 1997, the night before his death. Chris is drunk and distraught. He calls his friend, Tim O'Malley. I didn't know where he was. I didn't know the torture or the places he was or how much actual pain he was in. I just knew he was crying and begging, and I would say, see you at 10 o'clock tomorrow and try to get off the phone. And I'm like, I'm not getting up and coming to a bar, Chris. I told you I'll meet you tomorrow morning at a meeting. Tim has persuaded Chris to join an alcoholics recovery group the next day. We can get you back on track and you can live. Because I knew it was, it was a matter of life and death at this point. I'll see you tomorrow. The two friends will never speak again. Two AM, December seventeenth, nineteen ninety seven. Chris hits the bars for the fourth night in a row. He's drunk and hyper, and eyewitnesses describe him as on a roll. He's bouncing around Chicago. He's hanging around with people that probably he wouldn't hang around with under different circumstances. The close friends and family he was hanging out with earlier in the week have tired of his excesses. People said the first hour out with Chris Farley was the greatest hour of their lives. And the second hour was pretty cool. The third hour was a living hell. <laughs> but a Hollywood star with a reputation for hedonism is never short of drinking buddies. People that wanted to be friends with him or act like friends would take him out drinking and think it was, you know, jolly times with Chris Farley. <laughs> And that's how we'd end up with strangers in some apartment somewhere or, you know, taking a limo out to a strip club or whatever. 3.30 a.m., December 17th. Chris's nonstop party continues at an upscale apartment in Lincoln Park. And there's no shortage of drugs. According to the medical examiner's report, the Chicago Police Department found a small package of what appeared to be drugs underneath Chris's body. Now, the toxicology report does show the presence of cocaine both in his blood and within his stomach contents. After several hours of snorting cocaine, Chris is joined by stripper Heidi Hauser. According to Heidi, Chris cracks jokes about his appetite for drugs, telling her that he loves cocaine. When it comes to drug abuse, Cocaine would be near the top of the most unpredictable and dangerous drugs out there. And its presence in the autopsy report is hugely significant. At some point in Chris's career, it became alcohol and drugs were recreation to alcohol and drugs were the fuel to feed my comedy. He believed that he was at his best when he was on drugs. Most deaths from cocaine are likely heart-related. And when I look into the condition of Chris's heart, I find something that is truly shocking. He had severe coronary artery atherosclerosis, or coronary artery disease. 
Coronary artery disease is America's number one killer. It's caused when the cholesterol builds up on the artery walls and the body attacks the area with white blood cells. Over time, this process leads to a buildup of plaque, which thickens the artery wall and restricts blood flow. But if the plaque ruptures, it can cause a blockage, leading to a heart attack. Chris had blockages of up to 90% in his coronary arteries, and that's amazing in a 33-year-old. He is a walking time bomb. He could have dropped dead from a heart attack at any moment. You know what I've learned? I've learned lessons about responsibility. During this final Saturday Night Live appearance, Chris's health problems were all too apparent to his colleagues. I think it's time to quit goofing around. They had oxygen tanks right outside of camera view because he was huffing and puffing so much that they weren't sure that he was going to make it through the show. And I could tell that he was in really bad shape. And it broke my heart. Severely damaged coronary arteries and prolific cocaine use is a catastrophic combination. But there's something else that I see in his autopsy report that intrigues me. His blood was tested for gamma-hydroxybutyrate. It goes by the street name of GHB and liquid ecstasy. GHB became a popular clubbing drug in the 1990s. It's a muscle relaxant that slows the heart rate and gives users a similar feeling to being drunk. But an overdose can lead to unconsciousness and respiratory failure. According to reports, GHB was being used at Chris's final party. The fact that they are testing for GHB makes me believe that there's more going on than just a cocaine-induced heart attack. I suspect that there are darker forces at play than just cocaine that led to Chris's death. In Chicago this morning, medical examiners continue to try to find out what took the life of comedian Chris Farley. Chris Farley's sudden death on December 18, 1997, sent shockwaves through the entertainment industry. Now, world-renowned medical examiner Dr. Michael Hunter is analyzing Chris's autopsy report to uncover what was happening in his body during his final hours. I found out that Chris was binging on alcohol and cocaine the days leading up to his death. But something else has caught my eye. The autopsy report shows that his blood was tested for the party drug, GHB. December 17, 1997, 2.30 p.m., the day before Chris's death. Following a morning of drinking and snorting cocaine at a downtown party, Chris is at the apartment of stripper Heidi Hauser. And he shows no desire to bring his party to an end. He calls a drug dealer. Even the addicted people that were around him said he was one of the worst addicts they'd ever seen. I mean, he was an addict's addict. He had a level of addiction and obsession and compulsion that went beyond even very serious addicts. Oh! Looking further at the toxicology report, I can say that he tested negative for the drug GHB. I can rule this out as a possible cause of death, 
but it does bring up the possibility that there may be other drugs involved alongside the cannabis and the cocaine. I feel with the help of the autopsy report, I'm getting closer to the truth. Chris buys $1,000 worth of drugs, including crack cocaine. Always a pleasure with you. Crack is simply another delivery mechanism for cocaine. Instead of snorting powder, the user smokes a rock or a crystal, which delivers an intense euphoric high. But the high doesn't last as long, so the desire for more increases. Throughout the afternoon, Heidi and Chris continue partying. These pictures are among the last taken of Chris alive. In this one, he's surrounded by drugs paraphernalia. If you look at the last pictures of him with Heidi Hauser, his face just looks resigned. There's lines of opiates on the table, and his eyes don't look right. He doesn't look like someone with life in his eyes anymore. He just looks like a beaten person. Oh, At about 8.45 p.m., Chris calls for a limo. Yeah. Uh, uh, 10.05 p.m. Chris and Heidi are at his apartment on the 60th floor of the Hancock Center. According to Heidi, Chris is too intoxicated to be capable of sex. But he continues snorting drugs. Hey, Heidi urges him to slow down. Later claiming he was pounding his chest between hits. Okay? Cocaine can cause the arteries around the heart to spasm, causing severe chest pain and potentially cardiac arrest. Chris's mental state is deteriorating. He's been partying for at least three days without sleep. Chris, talk to me. Chris. By now, Chris would have been suffering from sleep deprivation, and this can cause micro-sleep or hallucinations. Most significantly, his perception of how many drugs he was taking could be severely impaired. By 3 a.m., Heidi Hauser is exhausted. He's still doing cocaine, and she's had enough. She's been with him for a couple days. It's not fun anymore. And she says, I'm leaving. Chris, I, I need to go. I need she asks Chris to pay her for her time. But he doesn't want to be left alone. And he says, don't leave me, don't leave me, don't leave me. Jesus, I'm out. Oh, I'm no, out. Baby. You owe me my money. No, no, no. I've been with you three days. You need to pay me no, my money about your girlfriend. <laughs> As she tries to leave, Chris appears to jokingly fall to the floor. Jesus, Chris. Heidi assumes he's fallen asleep and takes a photo, thinking it would be funny to show him later. December 18, 1997, 2 p.m. 11 hours since Chris was last seen alive. His younger brother, John Farley, comes by to pick up some stuff. Chris. Chris. Chris is not breathing. 
He has no pulse, and his body's cold. He is pronounced dead at 3.45 p.m. The death of Chris Farley today it means the entertainment industry and American audiences have lost a giant. Investigators say they see no signs of foul play. The cause of Chris Farley's death is not known tonight. An autopsy is expected to provide some answers tomorrow. I was in shock. I couldn't believe it. I was angry because he had so much to do and he promised me he wouldn't die. And he was too young, way too young. It was as if someone that had a terrible disease or someone that was very old in pain had gone and was out of pain. Everybody was really thunderstruck, yet not surprised at his demise. While the comedy world mourns the loss of one of its brightest stars, medical examiners begin investigating the cause of Chris's death. Dr. Hunter has established from the autopsy report that Chris had been on a non-stop four-day binge, gorging himself on alcohol, cannabis, and crack cocaine. According to the eyewitness testimony, Chris had dropped to the floor and simply fallen asleep. His death doesn't appear to be sudden, so it's unlikely that this is from a heart attack. What I need to find out exactly is what happened to him between the time that he falls asleep and when he's discovered the following day. One of the first things paramedics notice is what looks like vomit and saliva around Chris's mouth and blood coming from his nose. It's entirely possible that Chris could have vomited in his intoxicated state and then choked on his vomit while he was asleep. If this was the case, I would have expected traces of vomitous material within the airway and within the lungs. But when I checked the autopsy report, I discovered the most telling piece of evidence yet. His lungs are heavily congested with edema, which is an abnormal accumulation of fluid from blood vessels. So the discharge from Chris's mouth is not vomit. It's actually edema. Pulmonary edema occurs when fluid leaks into the lungs from the surrounding capillaries. It's potentially fatal. The edema in the lungs reduces the body's intake of air and starves the brain of oxygen. This is a major breakthrough in my investigation. Pulmonary edema can have multiple causes, including a heart attack. But I think that there is something else going on here that meant that Chris was on a far more destructive path than I realized. Chris would say over and over again, I want to die like Belushi died. You know, I want to be famous first, and then I want to die like Belushi died. Leading forensic scientist, Dr. Michael Hunter, is investigating the death of hell-raising comedian Chris Farley. Smaller. With the help of the autopsy report, I've discovered that Chris was found with this blood-tinged froth around his mouth. That's pulmonary edema or fluid from the lungs, and that's a common sign of a drug overdose. And now I found something else that could be the breakthrough I've been looking for. On the afternoon of December 18, 1997, police and paramedics attend the scene at Chris's apartment. While they try to establish what happened, 
they discover a packet of white powder underneath his body. Chris was using crack cocaine the night he died, but the toxicology report also reveals he had morphine in his blood. This turns my investigation on its head. Chris's addictions were no secret to his closest friends, and like so many aspects of his life, he found his own way to justify his problems. I was asking him about his love life, and he said, oh, he had a girl, and I said, well, tell me about her. And he said, she lifts me up when I'm sad. She's always there. She's my loyal companion, and she'll never betray me. So I said, well, what's your girlfriend's name? And he looked deep at me and said, heroin. Morphine is a byproduct of heroin. So the fact that they found morphine in his blood suggests that he used heroin the night he died. But looking at the autopsy report, I can see no signs of needle wounds on his body. So I think it's unlikely that he injected heroin. Heidi Hauser claimed that as well as snorting cocaine, Chris was snorting lines of heroin the night he died. Okay. Aside from avoiding some of the health risks associated with injecting the drug, snorting heroin is no less dangerous or addictive. Heroin produces an initial euphoric rush, followed by a warm flushing of the skin and feelings of alternating drowsiness and alertness. Taking heroin on top of cocaine is a potentially lethal combination known as a speedball. Chris's comedy idol, John Belushi, died in chillingly similar circumstances. He was found in a Hollywood hotel after taking multiple injections of heroin and cocaine. He was the same age as Chris Farley. Chris was very obsessed with the number 33 because John Belushi had died at 33 and, and people close to him talked about him saying he was going to die at 33. And you kind of wonder, had he set that template in his mind in some, in some way? I think that Chris might have felt there was some glamour in dying of a drug overdose and having a tragic ending like that because it would bring him closer to John Belushi's death. Whether or not Chris was consciously following in John Belushi's footsteps, many have speculated that his demons finally caught up with him. Chris had OCD, overeating problems. He had alcohol and drug addiction. And then he had incredible low self-esteem and self-loathing. The odds are terrible for people like that. You can take as much uppers, as much downers, as much heroin as you possibly can, and it won't stop the noise in your brain and your soul. Some close to him said, no way, he loved life. That self-destructive behavior, that level of addiction, I would certainly call his behavior suicidal. We can never know what was going on in Chris's mind in those final few hours, but the eyewitness states that he collapsed to the floor and fell asleep. And when I look at the autopsy report, I have to agree, his death was accidental. After examining all the evidence in Chris Farley's autopsy, Dr. Hunter can finally put together the story of his last hours. When Chris fell asleep on the floor, the cocaine and heroin were affecting his body in opposing ways. 
His heart was racing thanks to the cocaine, but the heroin was slowing his breathing dramatically. His reduced breathing meant that the blood vessels around the lungs couldn't cope with the amount of blood being pumped in from his overactive heart. As a consequence, fluid flooded into the lungs, some of which later leaked from his mouth and nose. The lungs' ability to oxygenate his blood was severely reduced, which meant that there wasn't enough oxygen getting to his brain. This lethal cycle resulted in brain damage, leading to respiratory failure, and ultimately death. Chris's funeral was held in his hometown of Madison, Wisconsin, on December 23, 1997. Giants from the world of entertainment turned out to mourn the loss of one of the greatest comedians of their generation. I miss my very, very good friend who always wanted to do things for me, who always surprised me on my birthday, who was just so much fun. You're terrible. The fact that we're still having this conversation 20 years later about what his legacy is goes to show you that that level of commitment, that level of belief in comedy was something we may never see again. It was like a comet. Here we go, we're gonna do a 32 belly option on two. Look at his past work and laugh and enjoy him, not as the tragic person who died in a horrible way, but as somebody who gave the world so much light and laughter. That's the Chris we should remember. <laughs> okay, enough of the jokes. hope you enjoyed this episode of Autopsy. Don't forget to subscribe at podcastone.com with the Podcast One app or at Apple Podcasts. Then go to reels.com, that's R-E-E-L-Z.com for clips, extras, and more from the TV version of the series, including reenactments and autopsy photos you'll only see on Reels channel. Find Reels on your TV at reels.com. I'm Dr. Michael Hunter. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash truecrime. 